to this episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, that's a real place that is currently saving the world. Tyler, you had a very exciting day today. What did you do? I got up and I took a shower and I came into my office. No, no, no. That's <laughs> that's not what I mean. <laughs> no, on the way in, I took a detour from my normal route into the office and I drove by the Pfizer Global Supply Plant, which is actually right here in Kalamazoo County, Michigan. And what do they do at that plant, Tyler? At this location is where they're doing the final manufacturing process for the COVID vaccine. And they're putting it on on pallets and on trucks and taking it to the, the airport just a few minutes away. So cue celebratory music. We have a <laughs> vaccine and it's finally starting to be distributed. That is very exciting. It is exciting. And that means the pandemic is over, right? Oh, no. No? no. You immediately squashed the excitement <laughs> oh, pretty quick no. there. No, it is also a terrible time when more people are dying than ever. So pandemic not over. But not over. phase one of pandemic being over, fingers crossed. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a really rough week as far as like the numbers and um, of people being affected and stuff. But the, the one glimmer of hope we've had in the last couple of weeks is this vaccine and also now a second, second vaccine have gotten something called emergency use authorization, right? That's right. People keep asking me, you know, how did we get through these vaccine trials so quickly? Because usually when you do a drug trial, it takes years. So warp speed, we got it really fast, which makes some people perhaps nervous, and we should talk about that. But the reason that it's coming out so soon is because it's actually not finished the FDA-required trials. It's getting emergency use authorization, which means that these drug companies, in collaboration with the FDA, decided that at some point in phase three of the trials, and if you don't know what that means, you should go back and listen to our Hot Take One episode about you know, how the phases of trials work. But somewhere in phase three, they agreed to sort of stop if it, if the drug had shown to be effective and safe and to start distributing it, even though we haven't totally finished phase three of the trial. Um, but there's there were 44,000 people enrolled in this Pfizer trial. Half of them got the vaccine, over 90% effective. So it was agreed that we could start distributing it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> So I, I think what's important to highlight is that this is not full authorization. So this isn't the way that, so this isn't the FDA saying that this is absolutely the one and only best treatment or best vaccine for this disease. And the emergency use authorization speeds up the process after which they demonstrate, like you said, in phase three, that it's effective and it's safe. We just don't have long-term data about it. Right. The trial will still go on. Phase three will eventually be completed. It's just that we're going to have a lot more people to monitor now. Lots more mm -hmm. people who are going to get the vaccine right away, maybe even next week, depending on when people hear this episode. So probably by the time people hear this episode, some people in the U.S. will have already gotten the vaccine. Right. What everybody is going to be closely watching is whether there are unexpected or other types of side effects from the vaccine. We saw that in the early administration in the United Kingdom, there were a couple of 
reported cases of some folks having pretty significant allergic reactions, but that they have allergies and that they have allergic reactions to some substances wasn't a surprise to them. And so I think that that's something that we're going to keep an eye on, but it's really hopeful. And I think that it's one of the few times in the last many months that I've felt like there is an end to this coming and it's uh, a light at the end of the tunnel, maybe. Gosh, I sure hope so. So the CDC met, gave recommendations about who should start getting this vaccine first. They laid out phase one, which for some reason is phase 1A and 1B. They didn't just call it phase one and phase two. So phase one has two different arms. The people who are going to get it in phase one are healthcare personnel and people residing in long-term care facilities. Right. People working uh, in healthcare. Obviously, we've talked a lot about them as you know, frontline and heroes and, and them being really crucial for the care during this pandemic, but also, and I think this is a really important thing to emphasize as well, is the long-term care facilities, generally people who are you know, 65 or older. And and so I guess my question, Devin, to you is, why are there these two groups? Why were these two groups selected? I mean, that's a great question. So long-term care residents make sense because they are actually the ones who are contracting COVID at the highest rates, and they're dying at the highest rates. Some of them are older, Um, Some of them are vulnerable um, in the sense that they have other comorbidities or they have um, conditions that make them more susceptible to COVID or COVID is more dangerous for them. They also live really close together and they can't social distance in the same ways that other people can. They are getting sick at really alarming rates. So it made sense to give them first access to the vaccine. And hopefully once they get it, we can start opening up some of those care facilities so people can see their loved ones because a lot of them have been isolated. And that is like leading to depression and other sorts of mental health conditions that we don't like to see. So this should be wonderful news for that group. And then people say, well, then why healthcare workers? And maybe maybe it makes sense, healthcare workers, but I think there are maybe a few different reasons. Are healthcare workers the most likely to get sick? You might think so because they're interacting with COVID patients more often. That's actually not the case. There are other populations that are getting COVID at way higher rates than healthcare workers. Prisoners who are also in confined spaces, people working in the restaurants right now. So there are other populations that are actually getting COVID at higher rates. So it's not because they're the most likely to get sick. It might be because you think, oh, well, it's like a reciprocity. So they've been putting their lives on the line and we owe it to them. That makes sense, except that there are lots of people who are putting their lives on the line, right? Yeah, essential workers are also putting their lives on the line. Um, So people who are waiters, teachers, bus drivers, they're more likely to get COVID, and they're also putting their lives on the line to make our economy run. A little bit of it might be reciprocity, but I think the main reason is that right now we are experiencing shortages in healthcare workers. We were all worried, us ethicists were really worried about ventilators and PPE. So we were worried that these supplies in our hospitals were going to run out, and we were focused on that. What we were less focused on and what we should have been more focused on was the healthcare workers themselves. We just don't have enough of them. They're contracting COVID, and our hospitals are getting overwhelmed. Really, we need to keep them safe so that they can then go on and treat people in our hospital systems. Yeah, that was one of the most surprising uh, developments out of the early part of the pandemic was when we were seeing a big push to preserve PPE and also the focus on ventilators, making sure there were enough of them 
But what really was kind of the the choke point was, like you said, people trained to run the ventilators. And so I think it makes sense in a lot of ways to prioritize not only as a way to give back, so this reciprocity idea. So they have been doing things above and beyond for many months and working closely with healthcare workers in a number of different settings. It's really troubling to see the emotional impact this has had and will continue to have on individuals. And so if there's anything that we can do to pay them back a little bit, I think that that's something that we should do. Also, like you said, there is a shortage of uh, people and we want to preserve the number of people who are able to care for other people. And in ethics, particularly in public health ethics, what we talk about is kind of a triage system, more like a in a battlefield or like a military scenario where we want to prioritize people who can get back on their feet and go out and save and go back into the battle against the virus. And I think that that is a way that we can uh, try to accomplish that. And I think that's the rationale that the CDC and the, the advisory boards to the CDC have talked about. It's also been interesting to look at how this prioritization differs from state to state and even from institution, but particularly between countries. And so the who gets the vaccine first in the United Kingdom is different than it is here. Oh, do you know? I actually don't know. How did they prioritize people in the United Kingdom? I think it was my understanding, and this may be outdated information, but I think that the prioritization system was based upon age rather than where you are living. So individuals who were elderly were prioritized regardless of whether they were in a long-term care facility or living at home. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I think as the next uh, phases roll out, we'll hopefully we'll do some more episodes. Who counts as an essential worker? Um, do we as teachers count as essential workers? Who counts as high risk? What sort of comorbidities do you have to have? These are actually questions that I have because when the CDC met, they didn't necessarily spell that out. They left that kind of up to the states. So we'll see what states end up saying. But my question now is, and I hadn't ever thought about this before, but who counts as a healthcare worker for this phase 1A distribution. We talked a couple of episodes about us as ethicists when we're in the clinical setting in the hospitals being mistaken for other individuals. Like I got mistaken for being in the IT department. Um, I've been mistaken for being a a chaplain uh, in the past, but this is really where the rubber hits the road about who is a healthcare worker. And I don't know if I consider myself to be a healthcare worker. I think I work adjacent to healthcare and I, I feel like I perform an essential part of good medical healthcare practice, but I don't know. I don't know that I consider myself to be in that group. Right. You might think it's sort of easy. Well, like anyone who works in healthcare is a healthcare worker, and that might be right, but do all of those people equally deserve to get the very first round of vaccine distribution? I think that's a different question. Sure, you and I might be considered healthcare workers in that we work in healthcare and Often we're in the hospital, um, although lately, not so much. Um, Not so much. And and so maybe we don't deserve to get or we shouldn't get that first wave. And that's not to say we don't we shouldn't get a vaccine ever, but just that are we the kind of priority people that need to get that vaccine first? I don't know. What do you think? Are you think you should get the vaccine first? Um, I don't know. I I mean, (laughs) I, I would like it right like everybody else. But I'm I see a lot of people who should be in line in front of me. And I think what's going to be a really uh, difficult decision-making process over the next several days or a week or two is when hospital systems or states get allocated a bundle of the vaccine, but there are more people who are in Group 1A than there are vaccines. And so even though you may be prioritized in Group 1A, you might not 
be first in line for whatever reason and how we make those decisions about fairly distributing amongst kind of people within the same group is going to be really challenging and i think that's where a lot of work from bioethicists is is being focused right now right and hopefully because bioethicists are working on it they're not putting themselves at the front of the line <laughs> yes i hope not <laughs> i don't think so but i mean by some counts there are like something between 17 and 20 million healthcare workers, and they can't all get the vaccine next week. So how are we going to prioritize who amongst that group of people will get the vaccine first and who might have to wait for later phases? So I looked this up and the CDC said that a healthcare worker is, quote, all paid and unpaid persons serving in healthcare settings who have the potential for direct or indirect exposure to patients or infectious materials. So that really narrowed it down, right? No, that's like <laughs> anybody who walks by a hospital almost, right? <laughs> right. So that didn't that didn't necessarily help. So let's say mm-hmm. that, you know, you're the CEO of a hospital, you have to or actually I'm not really sure who was making these decisions in the hospital. Um, if it's the medical director or or the the ethicist, whoever it is, you know that you're going to get a batch of vaccine, but it's not going to be enough to distribute to everyone who works for the hospital, all contractors, anyone who steps foot inside the hospital um, or is paid by the hospital. So how do you go about even tiering people who work in the hospital? And, you know, of course you'd say, there's some people who would seem really obvious, right? Like those people who are in direct contact with COVID patients, obviously they're right at the top, but there are lots of people who work in healthcare who aren't those people. And so how do we decide, you know, how to tier it? Have you thought about that as an ethicist at your hospital? Yes, a lot. And it's a really difficult question. I know some institutions, some health systems are looking at it very, very detailed um, as far as like, what are your individual risk factors? Not only like what area of the hospital do you work with and what types of patients do you work with, but you as an individual, how do we, if you have a particular health issue or comorbidity or some other reason that it might make sense for you to be at the higher on the list and they're looking into that even even as detailed as like what zip code do you live in because we know that the impact of COVID is very very geographically based so I know that that's kind of one extreme and I think it's a really good system that they're trying to work through and then other systems I think that they are hoping for more detailed guidance from the state or from the CDC which I'm not sure that that's really a, a realistic hope I think that they're going to be facing some really difficult decisions. And so and it's not just people who are kind of face-to-face with actively infected people. Um, so like in the ICU or people in um, COVID wards, but also uh, environmental services, for example, the people who come in and clean up the hospitals and, and clean up the rooms and transition them and r- roll them over for the next patients. Those individuals are really at risk. And uh, people who are doing the check-in at the front desk, for example, and people working in food services, like all of these are integral parts of the healthcare industrial complex. And if any one of those groups gets disproportionately impacted by by COVID and if they're prioritized at not the right spot, then it's going to be a real drag on the way that healthcare is going to be able to be provided. Absolutely. So there's all sorts of people who, if they became infected and they worked in the hospital, could be vectors um, for spreading COVID, and that would be really bad. In thinking about the episode for today, I was thinking through just, like you said, all the myriad of people who work in a hospital and how close they are to patients and just the, the many, many things they do to make sure the hospital runs. And so I put together a list by no means comprehensive, just 
the first 25 people I could think of who work in a hospital. Okay. And, and Tyler, I want to play a game with you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a game that is sure to get you some angry tweets um, based on how you answer. So this is going to be a quick fire game. I'm just going to name off healthcare worker personnel and you're going to tell me whether you think that they should be right at the top of the list to get a vaccine or not. And again, we're not saying they don't ever get a vaccine or they wouldn't get it the week after next. We're just saying if there's a limited supply, who amongst this, pe this group of people, and you have to name at least a few, who you'd say, no, they shouldn't be at the very top of the list. Are you game? I am, I'm game. Can I ask clarifying questions as we go, or is this just a oh, no. uh, no, kind no, of no. the rule of Caesar, thumbs up, thumbs down? Yep, yep. It's got to be quick fire. I want your hot take. This is a hot take okay. episode. I want your hot take. You got it? Okay. Yeah. So I just have the potential of offending huge groups of professionals across the country. Yep. So uh, definitely direct all your angry tweets directly <laughs> to Tyler, not to me. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Number one, emergency department physicians. Yes. Number two, ICU nurse. Yes. Number three, paramedic. Uh, yes. Okay. I, well, wait, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Number wait, are they, who are they employed by? <laughs> are they employed by the health system or are they? Yeah, they're employed uh, by the health system. Uh, yes. Okay. Number four, urgent care physician. Uh, no, not in the first round. Okay. Five, occupational therapist working in a rehabilitation setting. No. Number six, a chaplain who floats around to different floors of the hospital. No. Number seven, a first-year medical student. No. Number eight, an IT specialist. No. Number nine, a laboratory technician. No. Ah, this Num hurts. Oof. Yeah. These <laughs> <laughs> Number 10, a pediatric social worker. Oh, gosh. I, some of my favorite people in the world are pediatric social workers. Um, no. Okay. 11, a hospital custodian or janitor. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Number 12, a hospital laundry specialist. No. Number 13, tissue bank personnel. No. 14, the hospital plumber. Um, I'm going to say yes. Okay. 15, a radiologist. No. 16, hospital security. Oh, gosh. Yes. 17, an organ procurement specialist. No. 18, the phlebotomist. Oh, you know what? I think I just read that they have some of the highest rates of infection. So I'm going to say yes. Okay. Uh, 19, a family practice dentist. No. 20, a doula or midwife not employed by the hospital. No. 21, the cafeteria workers. Yeah. Uh, I wish you, I wish we could like videotape my facial reaction to how painful <laughs> this is. Come on, Tyler. Um, These are the no. hard choices. No. no. Okay. 22, the coffee stand worker. Oh, God, they're the most important people in the, the whole <laughs> hospital. Uh, no. 23, owners of the pet therapy dogs used in hospice. Oh, that hurts. No. <laughs> Medical equipment repair personnel. No. And 25, a hospital board member. A hospital board member? No. <laughs> of course not. Why would they be? That seemed like the easiest one. Okay. That was, that hurt. That was and that I'm brutal? Sure I, yeah, because I could see like individual colleagues in each one of those groups as I was saying yes or no to them, like their faces. But how would you go about answering the, those? Like, like what, what would the thought process be? Like, what are you trying to prioritize, right? I think that's what everyone is struggling with. Yeah, I mean, I think my thinking would be, so how close are, are they interfacing with patients or are they interfacing with infectious material that then they could pass 
on COVID. So that would be sort of like number one. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not sort of like how integral are they to the healthcare system. It's more like are they are they vectors, mm-hmm. and how essential is their job to caring for people in sort of the overrun areas of the hospital. Yeah, that was my thought process too. Like number one, like you said, what is their actual risk of day to day infection? Thought number one. Number two, how many other people do they have the potential of infecting? Number three, like how integral they are. So I, I think that's probably the way most people approach these, but they can definitely come to very different conclusions. Are there any that you would have chosen opposite of what I chose? You said no to a lot more than I was expecting, which good yeah. for you. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's not, not fun. And I think my hope in the back of my mind too was like, okay, this is just round one and they're going to be, you know, second level of distribution, they're going to be right there at the beginning. So that's right. The, the, the one that kind of struck me oddly was uh, the plumber, right? So why did you include a plumber? I, well, I was thinking about if there was a plumbing issue, right? You can't like not have a plumber. You can't have somebody, you, you have to fix that right away. Yeah. Um, and, and where else does that, does that plumber probably doesn't just work for the hospital. So, you know, how, how safe are they? And you know, are they interacting with materials that could be unsafe? I don't know. I just, I, I think I was just trying to throw you maybe. Yeah. Wow. That was less fun than I was hoping it was be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm here to just keep it lighthearted and yeah. uh, ask the easy questions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the last one that you said, a uh, board member, like where did that come from? Well, a good friend of ours who I will just not name at this point, um, sent you and I a text message showing a hospital's chart for who was going to be prioritized and hospital board members were on the chart and I just couldn't believe it because hospital board members typically don't actually enter the hospital if they don't need to, right? So they're not like on the front lines. It just struck me that they, in in no sense of the word would I have ever called them healthcare workers. I, I agree. I had the, kind of the same reaction. And I'm glad that we're keeping him or her or their name uh, out of this. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that uh, I think there are some times in which like a board member or like a dignitary could do a lot of good by being one of the first ones. I know that um, you know, Barack Obama and s- some of the other former presidents and also celebrities have you know committed to taking their vaccine live on camera and to try to use it as a promotional venture. So if that's the case, I think that that makes a lot of sense. But I don't know that just being by virtue of being on a board uh, would put you at the top of the list. It, it wouldn't in my mind. So hopefully this is a minority position because I, I don't think that most people would uh, be too happy to learn that the board members of the hospital were getting vaccines before everybody else. <laughs> so Tyler, do you have any pictures or video of the Pfizer plant where you are living that you could share on our website? Yeah, I took a couple pictures this morning as I was driving by and also took a couple pictures of the, the I would assume, local, national, international media outside of the plant, um, you know, doing stand-ups in front. So yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll post those. And, and I think just kind of one final comment of how kind of sobering it was to drive by and think about, you know, all of the expectations and hopes that are kind of hinging upon these vaccines. I took a picture of the the Pfizer plant sign that's out front that says, you know, Pfizer Global Supply, you know, headquarters or something like that. And just off to the side, probably out of the picture frame, is a flagpole with an American flag that's flying at half mast, which I thought was um, an interesting juxtaposition of the the hope, but also the sorrow of, of you know, everything that we've experienced collectively over the last many months. Absolutely. So everyone should continue to 
stay safe during the holidays. It's you know going to be so hard not to see our families, but we're not out of the woods yet. The vaccine's on its way, but many of us aren't going to get it for many more months. So we still have to be very safe. That's right. And if you are looking for ways to pass the time over the holidays, you always listen to repeat episodes of this podcast. And, and be sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. This podcast has even been Grandma Nancy approved. That's that's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out Grandma Nancy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing and performing our theme music. For show notes, visit bioethicsforthepeople.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.